We find ourselves in the final chapter of the book of Acts, so please make sure you turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be together in Acts chapter 28. And I'm calling this message today, Unhindered. The final installment in our Paul series, part 28, Unhindered. Well, it's one of the most loved children's stories of the past 100 years. I'm sure you've all heard it. It's known as the little engine that could. An early 20th century version of the story read like this. A little railroad engine was employed at a station yard for such work as it was built for, pulling a few cars on and off the switches. One morning, it was waiting for the next call when a long train of freight cars asked a large engine in the roadhouse to take it over the hill. I can't. That's too much for me to pull, said the great engine built for hard work. Then the train asked another engine and another, only to hear excuses and be refused. In desperation, the train asked the little switch engine to draw it up the grade and down on the other side. I think I can, puffed the little locomotive and put itself in front of the great heavy train. As it went on, the little engine kept bravely puffing faster and faster. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. As it neared the top of the grade, which had so discouraged the larger engines, it went more slowly. However, it still kept saying, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. It reached the top by pushing on bravely and then went on down the grade, congratulating itself by saying, I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. (laughs) Well, here this morning, as we're at the final chapter of the book of Acts and the final message in our study of the life of Paul, any guesses who the little engine that could reminds me of? That should be pretty easy to answer. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul, doesn't it you? He was able, even though he probably wasn't a very big man, he was able to persevere and push through obstacle after obstacle and incline after incline. He had more grit than just about anyone else in the New Testament. He was one that pushed through amazing obstacles, wouldn't allow any of them to stand in his way because he was going to tell people about Jesus Christ. Well, you may remember from our study over this past about half a year that we've been studying the life of Paul. You may remember what happened on his first missionary trip to Galatia. He was left high and dry by one of his fellow missionaries early in his trip. He got deathly ill. He was kicked out of one town. He received death threats in the second town. And in the third town, a mob threw rocks at his head until he was unconscious and then dragged him out and dropped his lifeless body on the dirt. And to think of it, all of that was just part of his first missionary journey. I don't know about you, but if that's how my first missionary journey had gone, I think I'd just wave the white flag and say, I'm going to take an early retirement. But not Paul. He goes on his second missionary trip, and the hardships just kind of intensify. In the city of Philippi, he's discouraged there in Philippi, 
Not really. Even though they beat him, scourged him, put his feet in stocks and threw him in prison. In Philippi, he wasn't discouraged. He was actually singing at midnight. And then the angel of the Lord set him free from prison. He goes on to the next town of Thessalonica. He makes his way down. And in the city of Corinth, things didn't go so well there in Corinth. This riot formed and they wanted to lynch Paul. But he pressed on. That actually wasn't in Corinth. It was in Thessalonica. And then on the third missionary trip, that wasn't a whole lot better. There on his third missionary journey in Ephesus, he was almost lynched by another mob. At the end of his third missionary journey, he traveled down to Jerusalem, his hometown. And there in Jerusalem, remember what happened? On several different occasions, three different times, a mob tried to lynch him. And in addition to that, there was a small group of Paul haters that tried to ambush him and kill him twice. And as we saw last week in Acts 27, after more than two years of being unjustly imprisoned in Caesarea, Paul was shipped off to Rome under the care of a Roman centurion named Julius. And as Paul boarded that ship and, and sailed north along the eastern Mediterranean coast and then off to Patara and then eventually, remember what happens on that, on that uh, trip to Rome? Eventually, the ship crashes. He's a part of a shipwreck. In Acts 27, as it came to an end, that ship Paul was on crashed on the sandbars of the coast of a small Mediterranean island. And clinging to anything that floats, each of those 276 passengers uh, uh, made his way safely to shore, just as Jesus Christ had promised. Once again, Paul had cheated death and climbed another impossibly steep grade God promised Paul that he would be given the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus in Rome. So the great apostle was willing to push through any obstacle that kept him from seeing God's promise realized. I can almost hear Paul saying, by God's grace, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Well, let me say that differently. By God's grace, I know I can. I know I can. I know I can. All by the grace of God. I believe Paul believed the promises of God with all his heart. He trusted them completely. So Paul was able to echo what Job had said in Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now, let's pick up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 28. Please follow along in your Bibles. Acts 28, beginning in verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul just shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, They changed their minds and said, he was a god. 
There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with with the supplies that we needed. May God bless us as we read and study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, in verse 1, Dr. Luke tells us the name of the island where Paul and his shipmates had their shipwreck. They were marooned on the island of Malta. Now, let me ask you, any guesses how many different islands are in the Mediterranean Sea? How many total islands are in the Mediterranean? Maybe 25, maybe 50, maybe as much as 100. How many do you think? There's actually around 3,000 islands in the Mediterranean Sea. 3,000. The largest of these, as we look at the map, is way over there on the left side. You see that large island on the left underneath the toes of the boot of Italy. That's the island of Sicily. You've heard of Sicily before. That's actually the largest island in the Mediterranean. The third largest is this island of Cyprus, uh, where Paul had gone in his first missionary journey. And so the island where they shipwreck is way over here, the island of Malta. That's where their ship crashed on the soundbars and they grabbed whatever would float and made their way to shore, all 276 who were on board Paul's ship. Now, interestingly today, the majority of these 3,000 islands spread throughout the Mediterranean Sea. The majority of them have just been assumed as territory of the nearest nation there on the mainland. So the most of those 3,000 are not their own island state. But there are two of these 3,000 islands that are their own nations. Any guesses which ones they are? It's not Sicily. Sicily's part of Italy. One of those is the first place where Paul administered on his first missionary journey there with Barnabas. He went to the island of Cyprus. Even today, Cyprus is its own nation. And interestingly, as small as the island of Malta is, that is the second and only other island in the Mediterranean Sea that is its own nation. Now, that's pretty remarkable because Malta is a teeny island. Many of you have probably visited uh, Catalina Island or at least seen it uh, from the coastline there in the L.A. area. Catalina is only about 25% smaller than the island of Malta. So out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, that is like a needle in the haystack. So no one can convince me that it wasn't a miracle of God that that terrible storm led them to a needle in the haystack, the island of Malta. I believe that was nothing other than the hand of God. Because in that vast sea, Malta is a teeny little island. Hmm. Now, God was working, moving Paul exactly where he wanted him to be. Now, some Bible scholars point out that the island's name Malta likely derives from a Phoenician word, the word Melitia or Melita, which means place of refuge. So that's kind of cool to think that God took Paul to an island which had as its very name a place of refuge. 
I think that's pretty cool. It was a place of refuge in the midst of the storm for Paul and the other 275 men on board. Luke tells us in verse 2 that the islanders showed them unusual kindness. If you have the King James translation or one of the older translations, they don't use the word islanders or natives. They use the word barbarians. And that's simply a word that used to be used uh, in Greek times for someone who didn't speak Greek. So it's not like, you know, uh, they were headhunters or something. They just didn't speak Greek. They were natives to that island. You can imagine how uh, huge this bonfire had to be as they lit this fire to show kindness to Paul and the other 275 men who had been victims of that shipwreck. These men got to shore. It was raining. It was bitter cold, especially because they were drenched from head to toe. And so these natives, these islanders were so nice making this huge bonfire to dry off and warm up 276 men. And so this must have been a huge fire. And we see there that even Paul, even though he had saved the lives of the men on that ship by being so connected to God and helping to usher in that miracle of of saving uh, them from that shipwreck. Uh, even though Paul, by this time, had basically earned the status of being the captain of the ship, even Paul rolls up his sleeves and gathers brushwood for the fire. I think that's a great lesson to all of us. We're never, as Christians, too high and mighty to do menial tasks for the good of others. You know, if I, as a pastor, refuse to scrub toilets at the church building or refuse to mop a floor or vacuum, then I probably shouldn't be a pastor. You know, those that lead must show themselves to be willing to get down and serve. Jesus modeled that for us. And Paul sets a great example. He doesn't think he's too high and mighty. He goes out and he gathers firewood just like the other guys. And he's gathering firewood, gathering the brushwood, and putting on the fire. Well, in verse 3, we read that something kind of bad happened to Paul. I guess he hadn't taken his dad's advice years ago that, son, whenever you pick up uh, some brushwood or some firewood, first check the pile to make sure no critters are hiding inside it before you reach into the pile and pull out wood. He must have forgotten to check the pile because as he's grabbing brushwood, a viper attaches itself to his hand. Now, some people point out there are no poisonous snakes on Malta today, and there haven't been poisonous snakes for at least the last few hundred years. Well, these islanders knew their animals and knew their critters on that island, don't you think? Wasn't that big of an island. And so evidently back then there were poisonous snakes because these islanders were convinced that this particular snake that they saw hanging off of Paul's hand was poisonous and it would kill him. And so we see that the islanders there are expecting Paul to drop dead. Notice what they say in verse 4. This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You'll probably notice in your English translation there, the word justice is capitalized. Did you catch that? That's pretty interesting. Why is justice capitalized? Because justice was a nickname of a Greek goddess, the Greek goddess of justice. And so they're actually saying here, he must be a murderer because this goddess who has been put in charge of carrying out swift justice on people who are violent criminals, she's seen that he's been delivered from the storm, but she's going to kill him by a snake. And so they actually think that some goddess has a vendetta against Paul, this goddess nicknamed Justice. 
Well, look again at verse 6. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly drop dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. It's basically the opposite of what had happened to Paul there in Galatia in the city of Lystra. Remember what happened in Lystra? The people were bowing down saying, oh, he's a god, he's a god. And like a split second later, they turned on him and started throwing rocks at his head. That was Lystra. First they thought he was a god, and then they tried to kill him. Well, here in uh, the island of Malta, it's actually the opposite. They leave him for dead, thinking that this goddess Justice was carrying out her vengeance on him. And then once they see that he doesn't drop dead, they start to worship him as a god. Well, I'm sure Luke is just uh, moving through this pretty quickly for the sake of time. I'm sure Paul, just like he had in Lystra, corrected the people and made it clear, I am no God, but I'll tell you about the one and only true God. And so they are just awestruck by what Paul is, is doing already, being bitten by poisonous snakes and not dying. By the way, that's a fulfillment of what we read in Mark chapter 16. It's Jesus says, in my name, they will pick up poisonous snakes and not be injured. Uh, that is a biblical example of that taking place. That doesn't mean we should have snake handling churches today. Uh, don't test God. I don't recommend picking up poisonous snakes and seeing if God's going to fulfill Mark 16. But in this case, when it happened by accident, it's one of the instances where God fulfilled that prophecy by saving someone who he had not finished working through yet. Well, we notice a little later in this passage, we just read that the uh, head of that island uh, was an official named Publius. Publius's father was sick in bed. Uh, he had this fever. He had dysentery. So with dysentery, he had these real sharp uh, cramps in his abdomen, uh, probably was, was dealing with diarrhea as well. Dysentery is not a fun thing. And so he's sick in bed. He's running back and forth to the bathroom. He's miserable. And so Paul goes in at the invitation of Publius, and he prays for him, he lays hands on him, and he heals him. Praise God. And then what happens next? Word spreads quickly. It's not a big island. So word spreads quickly. People from all around the island brought their sick family members and friends to Paul, and according to verse 9, they came and were cured. Just as God had performed extraordinary miracles of healing through Paul in the city of Ephesus. Here on the island of Malta, after his shipwreck, God is once again performing extraordinary miracles through the hand of the Apostle Paul. And you can be sure that Paul didn't miss this opportunity to tell people who really healed them. Not him. Not uh, Dr. Luke, uh, uh, not Aristarchus, their other traveling companion. God alone healed them through the hand of Paul. He pointed them to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the resurrection and the life, Jesus Christ. Here's a little something I learned in my studies last week, and you might find it pretty interesting as well. This word cured that's used in verse 9 is a translation of a Greek word that can refer to being healed through medicine. And so quite likely, Paul and Dr. Luke were working together as all these sick people were brought to be healed. We believe that probably Luke was administering medical care as best as he could. He probably lost his medical bag there in the Mediterranean during the shipwreck. But anyway, as best as he could, he treated them medically with his medical knowledge. 
And then Paul would pray for them, lay hands on them, and they would be healed. And so in all likelihood, Luke and Paul were working together side by side. If that's the case, here's what's pretty cool, I think. If that's what was happening, here we have in Acts chapter 28, the first example in the New Testament of God having a medical missionary on his team. Today, medical missions is huge around the world. Mercy ships and other ministries that go to some of the most poor countries on earth and minister to those that don't have medical care. What a wonderful thing it would be if there on the island of Malta, Dr. Luke became the first medical missionary. I think that's pretty cool. Well, after three months, the worst of the winter weather had passed. It was time to set sail. But Paul and his fellow shipmates only had the clothes on their backs. They had thrown all their supplies overboard during the storm. So in thanks to Paul for all that he'd done for them, the islanders furnished Paul and his shipmates with all the supplies they needed to complete their voyage to Rome. Well, that's where we pick up in verse 11 here in chapter 28. We read, After three months we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as uh, as the uh, Fortum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Hmm. After three months on the island of Malta, the worst of the winter weather had passed. So Paul, Dr. Luke, and Aristarchus were able to board another grain ship from Alexandria. Remember, we looked at that last week. These ships from Alexandria were bringing up grain from Egypt. Their first one had crashed, but evidently there was another grain ship there that had wintered at Malta. And it remained intact, so they were able to come on board that ship. We're not told if all 276 passengers uh, boarded that uh, second Alexandrian ship, but at the very least, that centurion Julius and his soldiers and Paul and the other prisoners boarded that ship headed for Rome. This ship, it says, had a figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux, or Pollux on its bow. So in Greek mythology, these two gods, Castor and, and Pollux, were twin sons of Zeus. And so they became kind of the patron gods of those who were sailors, of the nautical people. Uh, they believed that Castor and Pollux, if they stuck their figureheads on the bow of their ship, uh, they would be so imposing for any coming storm uh, that that storm would subside and, and Pollux and, and Castor would get them to their destination safely. And so imagine that you carve two fake gods on the front of your boat and you think uh, you've got like a, a safety pass from any bad weather. Kind of stupid, but that's what they believed. And Luke thought it was interesting enough that he included it here in chapter 28 in his account. Well, the first leg of their trip was about 80 miles here on the far side, remember, there's Malta. You can't even really see it on the map very well. But they were able to catch a favorable wind, travel 80 miles north to the uh, southeast tip of that boot, that southeast tip of the island 
of Sicily. And so they were there, it says, for three days. After three days, there was another favorable wind, and so they were able to go another 70 miles north to that city of Regium. That was on uh, the tip of the main part of the boot of the nation of Italy. And so they were in Regium overnight, and then over the next two days, the wind was good enough. They took a two-day trip from Regium all the way up uh, to Puteoli. That was a trip of about 180 miles, and Puteoli was the port that would connect them to the road leading all the way about 120 miles or so north into the city of Rome. And so once he got to Pudioli, he was able to disembark from the ship, and there were no more ships, at least for this trip. Everything else would be on foot there going into uh, into the uh, city of Rome. That uh, road leading up to Rome was a famous road in the Roman Empire, one of the most famous roads. It was called the Appian Way. And so it was about a 125-mile trip from the port of Pudioli all the way up to Rome, which was, of course, Paul's destination. Now, don't miss what Luke says in verse 15. It says, At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. There, as he was making his way by foot to Rome from Puteoli, those Christians in Rome that Paul had just sent a letter to about a year earlier, the letter uh, to the Romans, which is really Paul's Magna Carta in the New Testament, uh, the epistle to the Romans, uh, the letter of, of uh, Romans there in our New Testament. He just written it a, uh, a year earlier. They found out Paul was coming and they traveled all the way down to Fair Havens and, and uh, not Fair Havens, to Three Inns and those other cities all the way almost to Pudioli where Paul had disembarked. And so these Christians long to see Paul and give him love and encouragement. And as we read there in verse 15, he thanked God for them. He was encouraged by them. Now, some four to five months after having set sail from Caesarea, Paul finally did arrive in Rome. And according to verse 16, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So in other words, he was under house arrest, in all likelihood chained to a single soldier. Now let's finish the chapter, picking up here in verse 17. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Uh, They examined me and, and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. And that I had any charge to bring, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything about you, particularly anything bad. But we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people elsewhere, really everywhere, are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even large, larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God, and he tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe 
They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now, remind me. Over the course of Paul's three missionary journeys, who slandered Paul the most, Jews or non-Jews? And on those same three missionary journeys, remind me again, who verbally harassed Paul the most, Jews or non-Jews? Who physically assaulted Paul the most, Jews or non-Jews? And how, or who was it that plotted to take Paul's life more than any others, the Jews or the non-Jews? The answer to all four of those questions is, it was the Jews. The Jewish people, more than any other group in Rome, had attacked Paul and slandered Paul and harassed Paul and physically abused Paul and tried to kill Paul. That being the case, I think it's pretty remarkable that after all the Jewish people had done to Paul over the prior 25 years, the first group he wanted to share Christ with there in Rome was the Jews. Isn't that remarkable? Just about a year earlier, as I mentioned, Paul had written his Magna Carta, that book of Romans, and he had wrote, written in Romans 9, verses 2 and 4, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. If you interpret that to mean, if I could, I would go to hell so my brother Jews can go to heaven. If that's how you interpret Romans 9 verses 2 through 4, I believe your interpretation would be correct. Paul longed for his fellow Jews to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and receive eternal life. Paul writes one chapter later in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. What an amazing man of God. After all the Jews had done to him, Paul still, he still put them first on his itinerary when he rolled into a new town. Three days after arriving in town, Paul called together the Jewish leaders. He got them up to speed on his trial, but it turns out they were clueless. No one had sent them word about Paul. They hadn't heard any bad things about him. They didn't know that that mob had tried to lynch him there in the temple grounds in in Jerusalem. They didn't know that he'd spent two years in Caesarea. They didn't know any of this. And so Paul gets him up to speed. But you know what? They really didn't need to get up to speed, I guess, because they didn't have any false information about him in the first place. But once they heard about Christianity from Paul, they had heard about that. 
They had caught wind of Jesus and the Christians that were leading others to Christ throughout the Roman Empire. And so in verse 22, they call Christianity a sect. So Paul jumps at this opportunity to teach them about Jesus Christ and the new life that Christ offers. The Jewish leaders returned on a different day with a larger group of eager listeners, according to verse 23, from morning till evening, Paul explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And look at verse 24. Look at the results. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. As the naysayers got up to leave, Paul quoted Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. And then he left them with these final words in verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Well, Dr. Luke's amazing account of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul ends with these two final verses at the end of chapter 28. Luke writes, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. As you probably know, when the original Greek version of the New Testament is translated into English, oftentimes we have to switch the words around during that translation process, those words within a sentence, those words within a verse, in order to carry out the proper laws of English grammar. A quick example, some of you speak Spanish, and you know that in Spanish, uh, you don't speak an adjective before the noun. Uh, You don't say the red house or the big dog. You will say the house red or the dog big, right? And so the adjective in Spanish will go after the noun. Well, it's kind of similar with Greek. Sometimes we have to switch the words around a little bit to have that sentence make sense in English. So with that in mind, guess what the final word in Luke's original Greek version of the book of Acts, guess what the final word in the book of Acts is in the original Greek? Any guesses? Here it is. It's akolitos. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, akolitos. You're like, okay, what on earth does that mean? Akolitos translates into English as unhindered. The very last word in the book of Acts in the original Greek is the word unhindered. And so it reads kind of like this. Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ boldly and unhindered. I think that's pretty remarkable. Some of us might say, well, wait a minute. Paul is chained to a Roman guard night and day. He's under house arrest. Yeah, he was chained to a Roman guard. Yeah, he was under house arrest. And isn't it true, Dane, that he was forbidden to leave? He couldn't go where he wanted to go or leave when he wanted to leave. Yeah, that's true, too. So how could Luke possibly say that a chained apostle under house arrest was unhindered? Well, he could say that. Now, I want you to pay attention to this because we all need to hear this today. And the one life lesson I'm going to share with you in a couple minutes 
is based on what I'm about to say here. This is so important. Despite his physical limitations, despite his limitations, Paul was able to preach the gospel and serve Christ unhindered because he was where God wanted him to be doing what God wanted him to do. Now let that sink in for a moment. Being chained to a Roman soldier didn't hinder Paul at all. It just gave him a captive audience. Amen. In fact, if you look over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says that during this two-year house arrest, the whole palace guard of the emperor heard about Paul being in chains for Christ. In other words, all of those guards probably had a chance at one point or another to be chained to Paul, and they all got to hear about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Being confined to his house didn't hinder Paul. Plenty of people came to hear him speak the gospel. Being under house arrest didn't stop Paul from ministering to literally billions of Christians over the past 2,000 years because, you see, it was during this two-year house arrest that he wrote his four prison epistles. The four letters in the New Testament we know were written during this house arrest. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon, all four of those letters written during house arrest. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you thankful that those four books made it into the New Testament? He had the time to write those books while he was under house arrest. So the bottom line is Paul was unhindered, even though he was chained. And so here is that life lesson I don't want you to miss today. Despite your physical limitations, you too are able to share the gospel and serve Christ unhindered if you are where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. Luke doesn't tell us what happened to Paul after his two-year house arrest in Rome. As best we can tell by piecing together the details, Paul's accusers never showed up, so he was automatically released after two years. Once released, Paul went back onto the mission field, we believe, possibly going as far east as, excuse me, as far west as Spain. And at some point over the next couple years, Paul was rearrested, sent back to Rome, where he was executed by beheading at the order of Emperor Nero. Well, during this message series on the life of Paul, I've quoted quite often from Chuck Swindoll's excellent book called Paul, A Man of Grace and Grit. I highly recommend it. It's a great book about the life of Paul. And Swindoll ends his final chapter of the book with this beautiful description of how Paul's execution likely went down. He writes, His earthly end came swiftly. Abruptly, alone and without fear, Paul stared directly into the eyes of the execution squad. Several held rods with which they would beat him. One held the sharp axe with which he would sever the apostle's head from his shoulders. Few words were spoken. They marched him through the heavy gate and beyond the stone wall that surrounded Rome, past the pyramid of Cesius, which still stands today, and on the Ostian way toward the sea. Crowds journeying to Rome knew by the rods and the axe that an execution would would soon transpire. They had seen such signs before. 
They passed it off with a shrug. It happened yesterday. It would happen tomorrow. The manacled prisoner walking stiffly, ragged and filthy from the dungeon was not ashamed or degraded. The squad of grim-faced soldiers never noticed as they frowned and stared ahead. But there was a faint smile on the prisoner's face. He was en route to a triumph. The crowning day of his reward. For to him to live was Christ, to die, gain. No axe across the back of his neck would rob him of his triumphant destiny. In fact, it would initiate it. They marched Paul to the third milestone on the Ostian Way to a little pine wood in a glade, a glade of the tombs known now as Trey Fontaine. At that place today there stands an abbey in Paul's honor. He is believed to have been put overnight in a tiny cell near the place of his execution. At first light the next dawn, the soldiers took Paul to a stump-like pillar. The executioner stood ready, stark naked, axe in hand. The men stripped Paul, tied him, kneeling upright to the low pillar, which exposed his back and neck. Uh, The lictors beat him with rods for the last time. He groaned and bled from his nose and his mouth. And then without a hint of hesitation, the executioner frowned as he swung the blade that gleamed in the morning sun high above his head, then brought it down swiftly, hitting its mark with a dull thud. The head of Paul rolled down into the dust. In that brutal moment, silently and invisibly, the soul of the great apostle, the man of grace and grit, was immediately set free. His spirit soared into the heavens, absent from the body he was, at last at home with the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your power, a moment of tragedy can be a moment of triumph. Paul was not dreading a moment of it. He was looking forward to being set free in your presence. And it was possibly just a few days earlier that he had written to young Timothy those words that we have recorded for us in the letter 2 Timothy in our New Testaments. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not just to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul, who fought the good fight so well, who kept the faith no matter what obstacles he faced. And we thank you that he finished the race. Hmm. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for this beautiful, powerful, life-changing servant of the living God. The Apostle Paul, we will always be grateful to you for him. Thank you for meeting him on the road to Damascus and transforming his life and in turn transforming our lives through his beautiful, powerful writings. Thirteen books in the New Testament 
were written by Paul because of the grace of God upon him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We praise you. And we want to serve you well until you call us home as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I want to say those same words. I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. I want to be able to say that like Paul. I want to finish my race well. If you've never begun that race, you need to put Jesus Christ in charge of your life today. Not tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. You need to do it today. You need to admit that you were a sinner. To believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and choose to begin following him today. Turn from your sin. Invite Jesus Christ to come into your life. And you get baptized as soon as possible to show that you are serious about obeying Christ from this point forward. Let us know if we can help you with that. Let us know if we can pray for you. And those of you who are followers of Christ, if you need prayer, reach out to us. We'd be happy to pray with you. You can call us or you can reach out to us by email. You just let us know if you need prayer. Well, we're so glad that you are with us today. And I'm here to tell you that no matter what health issues you have, no matter how many tragedies you deal with, if you serve Jesus Christ faithfully, whenever your final breath comes, it is not going to be a moment of tragedy. It's going to be for you a moment of triumph because of the grace of God. God bless you.